This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Air Force is trying to retire $1.4 billion worth of legacy systems next year. The one thing standing in its way, Congress. Members often object to losing systems located in their districts. Air Force officials faced their first test with Senate appropriators earlier this week. Federal News Network Scott Massioni joins me with the latest. And first of all, Scott, what specifically is the Air Force trying to do away with, or I should say retire, and, and why? Right. Well, they're not exactly trying to retire all of these systems. So we've in the past seen the A-10 Warthog get proposed to be retired completely, right? In this situation, they want to just get rid of a few. For example, they want to get rid of eight C-130Hs. In this example, they want to get rid of some A-10s, F-15s, F-16s, KC-135s, KC-10s, the C-130Hs, which I I talked about earlier, the E-8s, and then the RQ-4s, which are drones. So it's, it's a good bit of legacy systems that they're trying to get rid of. And then also ones that they are, you know, that's, it's going to affect a lot of different senators and, and representatives in their, their districts. And rightfully so, they're a little um, concerned about how it'll affect jobs and everything else in those areas. So basically they're trimming programs, but not eliminating the programs themselves. They'll still be A-10s and C-130s just elsewhere. Exactly. And, and what they're trying to do is make room for uh, more interesting and uh, diverse future technologies, things that might uh, help counter uh, China and Russia. These are things that uh, are pushing innovation like hypersonics, uh, space systems, cyber stuff. And the Defense Department as a whole is trying to make room for $2.8 billion. The Air Force is just taking about half of the brunt of that. The, the Navy is taking a, a large chunk of that as well. And then uh, Special Operations Command and the Army are taking just a, a small bit of that. And aside from the fact that not really eliminating the program, but just trimming it doesn't get rid of the gigantic logistics cost that it still entails because you've still got those planes and so forth aloft. What were some of the senator's concerns? The Senate Appropriations Subcommittee for Defense Chairman John Tester was really concerned about the 8C-130Hs. And what he was afraid of is that the Air National Guard would lose some of their uh, flying time, some of their squadrons would not be able to, uh, you know, do some of the the uh, training that they usually do. And what CQ Brown, who's the chief of staff for the Air Force, said is that, you know, these planes are going to be replaced by upgraded models. It's just going to take a little bit of time. So these C-130Hs are going to eventually be C-130Js, which are a bit more capable. They have a longer range, a bigger capacity, all that sort of stuff. But you know, the senators are afraid that, you know, in a few years, they might not have some some of the, uh, the the jobs that they had there before. Senator Patty Murray from Washington was also concerned about divestments in the KC-135. She thinks that the uh, Fairchild Air Force Base is doing a really good job for refueling missions in the Air Force. And, uh, you know, at this point, the Air Force says that Fairchild Air Force Base is doing a, a really good job at what they're doing. And they're, they think that it'll be a good candidate for the upgraded KC-46. We're speaking with Federal News Network Scott Massioni. And of course, Congress has the last word when it comes to the budget. So what's it looking like for the budget once Congress mows through all of what it has to digest? Right. So we have a a $715 billion budget for the Defense Department at this point. Uh, But as you said, Congress has the last word. And right now, it's looking like there's going to be a pretty big fight between the uh, more liberal senators and representatives and the more conservative ones. The conservatives would like a 
a larger defense budget. The liberals would like a smaller defense budget. We might end up with that $715 billion, but what it'll look like underneath that top line may be very different from what the Biden administration has proposed. Um, we always see a lot of uh, parochial interests kind of inserted into the appropriations bills that may mean a couple extra F-35s, a couple extra, you know, whatever, uh, underneath there. And the Defense Department might not get what they're actually asking for when they're trying to actually save this money and divest from legacy systems. You almost wonder if they propose these trims, like a bunch of A-10s, but not the A-10 program, because they really want the A-10 program. And they know that Congress will add those back anyway, because if you get rid of 10 percent of the planes, you still have 99 percent of the cost of the program. There's no cost to a plane sitting there. It's only when you fly it. And I just mentioned the A-10 because that comes up year after year. But do you think there's some of that little, I don't know, fudging your bets effort going on by the Air Force to try to get some plus ups back in there? Uh, You know, I mean, I think honestly, and this is just, you know, just conjecture, it's almost like taking a bet and and betting really far ahead so that you can get a few get what you actually want. So they I think they really do want to get rid of the A10. It's something that has been something that that they don't need anymore. But by asking to get rid of 30, they might actually get rid of 10 or 15 of them, which is helpful along the way and may save the money for something they actually want to do. But then that whole duel is not really based on any strategic concern about whether this plane has a role in future Air Force combat, but it's all about the budget and not about the strategy. Right. And, and you know, that money would go, like they said, this money would go toward microelectronics and 5G technology and that sort of thing. And I think that's really where the Air Force wants to put its money in the future. And that's, uh, you know, where the future of, of warfare is going to be going. That's really where they need the money to go, but they need to convince Congress to not have their parochial interest in, in that. And that's the tough part. Well, maybe they could redo that big nose gun to shoot chips instead of bullets or something. Who knows? And Scott, you also mentioned earlier, and let's pull on this one a little bit more, the Air Force working on some experimental projects. And what can we expect? What's What are you seeing there? Right. There's a, a new Vanguard program, and this is something that was announced a few years ago. These Vanguard programs are things that will take the Air Force really far into the future, kind of sci-fi type stuff. And uh, what they think they can do now is use a terrestrial rocket to deliver troops or cargo uh, anywhere around the world in less than an hour. So this would go up into space and then land uh, on re-entry, much like SpaceX is doing right now. And, uh, you know, it sounds almost really far-fetched and and crazy, but they think that right now with the private industry investments and with technology that's happening, they might be able to do it, deliver thousands and thousands of pounds of cargo anywhere in the world. uh, And that would uh, hopefully, you know, really help to, Uh, hedge against China and Russia and these other near-peer competitors. And did I hear you say correctly, deliver troops by rocket from point to point on Earth? Right. That that could that's a possibility in the future. Uh, this is something like we said, this is far in far in the future. They're investing at this point. They're probably going to start with cargo, but there is a possibility that they may put troops in there. We know that Jeff Bezos is now going to space and uh, that's this is something that he's been investing in. So this could possibly mean that troops could some someday and at some period in time make it to the middle of Russia in less than an hour. Well, maybe Jeff Bezos wants to make sure that we can get Chinese flip flops delivered coast to coast in an hour by rocket, maybe. Who knows? Federal News Network, Scott Mossioni. Thanks so much. Thank you. Check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach 
at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a senior advisor and deputy chief of staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment, Shane, and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions. Uh, on those, on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there've been so many moments saying, I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a rural school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, 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 the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, 
Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce, uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most. And that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream, which we often define and think of his big, I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, What comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees and, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the 
Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are hard workers. That's where the work is done. And, uh, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. As prices keep creeping up, your entertainment budget doesn't have to take a hit. Live One Plus has all the music you love, ad-free for only $3.99 per month. Dive into Live One's massive library of songs, listen to curated playlists, or create your own. Check out exclusive artist-hosted stations and do it all for the best price in streaming. Lock in a Live One Plus membership for just $3.99 per month now, and you'll not only beat inflation, you'll get all your favorite music ad-free. Check out liveone.com slash best music for details. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at pluralsight.com vision.